My name's Kieran Carr. Great to have you with us. I'm the Associate Minister here and it's Bob's really given me some cracker passages in, in Philippians for which I'm very grateful for uh, to go through with you. So please do keep Philippians 3 uh, open as we go through it today. Uh, recently, in, in the last year or so, I've, I've come across some excellent conversion stories. So I don't know if you have a Netflix account, but uh, most of it's complete rubbish. I can't watch it because of the amount of evil in it. But Unorthodox is a really good show, uh, and it's, uh, it's based on a bi- autobiography by Deborah Fieldman. Uh, sorry, I'll get this clicker going. Here's a little bit of a picture of, uh, of, the, of that book, Unorthodox. The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots. It's about a girl who um, traces her journey from this ultra-strict Jewish Hasidic community in New York and has like a conversion and ends up in this kind of ultra-liberal, progressive uh, community in Berlin. Uh, So just an interesting conversion story. Another one that I've read in the last year or so is by a a woman called Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Very interesting name. Uh, and, And this is a conversion story in the completely the opposite direction in many ways. Uh, she was a lesbian activist living with her partner. She was a professor at a renowned university, head of the Centre for Women's Studies, and she traces the story from that community to becoming a like quite a conservative Christian married to a bloke uh, with uh, several children and some adopted ones thrown in. So another really interesting, uh, fascinating conversion story. Uh, and then uh, to throw in for good measure this book called Metanoia, which means repentance, turn around another excellent conversion story by an, a famous Australian actress uh, called Anna McGahn. And she was like living a wildly promiscuous life as a, as a successful Australian actress. And this is the story of her out of that community to becoming an on-fire Bible-believing Pentecostal Christian. Uh, excellent story. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is because the title of these books, um, they would be perfect titles for, for this passage that we're looking at today, uh, this Philippians 3, where Paul shares his conversion story. You could call it unorthodox, the scandalous rejection of my Hasidic roots, or you could call it the confessions of an unlikely convert, or you could call uh, Paul's testimony in Philippians 3, Metanoia. Any one of those would be a perfect title uh, where he goes from reveling in his identity as an outstanding and high-achieving Jew to becoming someone who is utterly revulsed by his former identity as an outstanding and high-achieving Jew. And with all of these conversion stories, the question you ask is, and the thing that's so intriguing and interesting is, how did that happen? What was it? What led to this change? And in particular, in Paul's case, how did he go from being someone who thought of all his accolades and his achievements as his absolute crown and glory to being someone who thought of all of those accolades and achievements were absolute crap? How did that happen? Now, normally a preacher is not meant to say crap, but uh, actually, it's, it's actually the right word because um, your translations, uh, the, the Bible translators get a bit nervous about some of the words that they find uh, in, in the New Testament. And th- this is a case in verse 8 because uh, I think it's verse 8 where he, he says, I, I regard them as rubbish. Well, let me tell you that that is quite a sanitized, watered down, 
anxious translation of the word that Paul actually uses. The word Paul uses in Greek is skybalon, which means crap. It means dung. Um, But the translators get a bit nervous about that uh, because, you know, a scholar and an apostle and a Christian isn't meant to use that word, right? I mean, this is the Bible. Surely you you might use crap on occasions, but man, this is the Holy Scriptures we're talking about saying it. This is the Apostle Paul. And right, he was a a scholar, right? And scholars generally, they, they make measured claims, right? They footnote everything, they're balanced, they can make careful arguments. And here he's just going, nah, it's crap, why? Well, why would he use such strong, emotive, kind of non-balanced language to, to talk about what he used to revel in? What's going on here? Well, he's, he says it's because he's discovered the pearl of great price. He says it in verse 8. He's found something of surpassing value. Did, did you see that phrase in verse 8, he's found something of surpassing value. In Greek, it's, it's super echo. He's found the super thing of surpassing value. He's saying, I found something so beautiful and so amazing that the things that used to control me, the things that I used to live for, the things that I was enslaved to have no power and have no control over me anymore because I found the super thing. I found the pearl of great price. Wouldn't you love to know what that is? Well, he says in verse 9, he says it's to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that is based on faith in Christ, a righteousness from God based on faith. That's the super thing. That's the pearl of great price, righteousness. Really? It sounds kind of boring. Righteousness. Like, you mean like being a good person or something? That's the pearl of great price? Nah, that's not it. Well, what is it? I'm glad you asked. Because <laughs> that's what we're talking about today. Righteousness is our most fundamental need. Righteousness is our most fundamental problem and righteousness is our greatest gift. That's where we're going today. Righteousness is our most fundamental need. If you were to ask Paul, righteousness, like that's the pearl of great price, what what do you mean? Well, I think he would point to verse 4, 5 and 6 where he puts lists seven things, which is a very good Jewish number, isn't it? Verse 4, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So what's he doing? He's listing off his credentials. Which wouldn't stand for much today. You know, imagine rocking up to BHP or, or Deloitte's and going, circumcised on the eighth day. <laughs> that doesn't do much for you today, does it? Uh, but, but back then, that was the bee's knees. Like, that was awesome. That was an awesome resume. Like, you couldn't top it. 
right? So, so let me unpack some of it for you, okay? Like, so when he says circumcised on the eighth day, he's saying, I'm a true blue Jew. Some of you can't get the smile off your face. He's saying, I'm a true blue Jew, right? I'm not like one of those Gentiles. I'm circumcised on the eighth I'm a true blue Jew. But then he goes further of the tribe of Benjamin. And, it, and, and that's like, well, what does that mean? Well, man, I'm one of the two tribes who stayed loyal to David. The other ten were like traitors, like they abandoned David. But I'm one of the tribes, so I'm not just a true blue Jew. I'm a true blue Benjamite Jew. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm that good. And then, and then when he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, it's like he's saying, man, I wasn't just a spectator. I wasn't just a pew sitter. I was an activist, man. Every single protest, every single rally, every single sit-in, I was there. I was leading the thing. I was organizing the whole thing. Like, these are my credentials. Respect. It's like, mic drop, if you know what that is. So what's he doing? He's, he's giving you his credentials. He's, he's giving you his, his resume. And it's awesome. I mean, equivalent today would be like first-class honours at Oxford, PhDs from Harvard and Stanford, you know, like major general at the age of 22, etc., etc. Like, these are good credentials. So his righteousness is his resume. And think about it. What's a, what's a resume? Well, it's a list of all your accomplishments, your merits, your achievements, your degrees, all your accomplishments, right? Everything that's great about you. And what's the purpose of a resume? What do you use the resume for? Well, it's, it's so that you can get in, isn't it? It's so that you can qualify, so that you can join the club. So really, your resume is like a case. It's an argument for why you should be accepted, why they should let you in. So right, if you want to go to university, you, you could probably find somewhere that will take you in, right? But if you want to go to Oxford, you better have a good resume. You better be able to make the case for them to let you in. And if you want to get a job, like, well, you might be able to get a job, like some job somewhere, but man, if you want to get a high-paying job at a prestigious firm, then you better have a good resume because otherwise they won't let you in. Now, the next point I shared in the, at 7.30 and they kind of looked at me blankly going, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's true when it comes to romance. Like if you remember those heady days of, of like trying to find someone, right? Everyone's sizing each other up and, and comparing resumes. Like how are they in the looks department? How are they in the kind of income capacity department? How are they in the personality department? How are they, how are they in the kind of um, emotional intelligence department, the, the EQ? the IQ department and you're doing that to them right everyone and 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 then everyone's doing that to you and so you're like here look at my credentials this is what's on my resume it's like well I might not be a pretty face but I earn a lot of money so you know on 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 balance right and so everybody's doing it with each other but here's the thing like we even use the system on ourselves right because we set ourselves certain standards, and if we reach them, we're in. But if we fall short, mate, boy, do we beat up on ourselves. Boy, is it a disaster. Boy, does it hurt. Boy, is it hard to pick yourself up from when you fall short of your own standards. 
So your resume is not just what other people use to either let you in or cast you out. It's actually what we use on ourselves to let ourselves in or kick ourselves out. You see, our resume is is what we can boast in. Paul, in in verse 3, he talks about boasting in Christ and then he uses the word confidence three times. And and, and what is it that can make you confident? And he he says, if anyone else has confidence in the flesh, I have more. And it's funny because when we think of the flesh, we think of like gambling and like sleeping around and like yeah you used to live a terrible life but but no this confidence is 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 his resume right and the fact is that you've got your list and I've got mine but they're completely different so so your justification for your existence is different from mine we we all use different criteria that we put on our resume even though we're doing the same thing we're we're like well this is why I'm up to it It, it's all different right so for example back in high school um, I was a bit dumb and so the thing that I was putting on my resume during high school if you looked at my resume it was girls 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 right that that's what I cared about like that was on my resume right look at Ruth's resume during high school and it's grades 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 (laughs) which is kind of a better bet, right, when, when you're in high school. But, but, they're, but they're different, right? But they're still like means of justification and, 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 and measuring up. Well, maybe in a Christian context, right? You do this everywhere. Whatever your field is, it's like, well, I'm at this firm, not that firm. Well, I'm at this firm, but I'm also this, and you're not that. So that makes me, you know, like we're just doing it constantly, right? And in a Christian context, what you, put up, you might put on your resume is, well, I'm a conservative evangelical, not like all those pesky liberals. Or, or you might say, well, I'm a generous evangelical, not like all those pesky conservatives, right? So, so we're, always doing, we're always doing this. It's like, this is my resume and, this is, and we always come out on top. We're, we're writing our resume. I do it differently to you, but, but here's the thing. This is, this is why. This is where it goes back to. It goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned against God. How did they feel? They felt naked and ashamed, and so they got to work. They, got na- they felt naked and ashamed, and they got to work to do something, to cover up their nakedness and to cover up their shame. And what did they stitch together? They stitched together fig leaves to try and cover up their nakedness and cover so so that's why righteousness is our most fundamental need right because without it we just feel completely naked and ashamed i um i just might not be a helpful place to go when we're talking about being naked and ashamed but this is a new shirt i got right and and on the on the package it said great clothes leads to greatness <laughs> right so, so we don't just wear clothes to like just like cover. It's like no man, clothes. It's the same with cars, right? They're like cars aren't cars aren't to get you A to B. No, clothes is like like with everything. Like it's we don't just do it for like the basic need. It's like no, this is to cover my nakedness, to cover my shame, to show you my resume, and show you how great I am. So righteousness is our most fundamental need because we feel naked without it. But secondly. Righteousness is our most fundamental problem. See, the thing that I want you to notice in Paul's testimony here, and the thing that blows my mind, is that his testimony is totally different to what we think a good testimony should be. And I hope it blows your mind. 
Because we think a really good testimony is supposed to go something like this, right? I was a drug dealer and a womanizer and a pimp. And then I met Jesus and I cleaned up my act. And now I'm married with three kids, a house and a dog. And I volunteer at the soup kitchen on Monday nights or something like that, right? But, but that's not Paul's testimony at all. You see, the problem that got solved when Paul came to Christ was not the problem of his sin. What was the problem that got solved when Paul met Christ? What was the thing that kept him having a relationship with Jesus? In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, what was the thing that kept the Pharisee from having a relationship with Jesus, for being justified before God? Was it his sin? What was it? It was his righteousness. It was his righteousness that was the problem. In other words, the thing that changed when he met Christ wasn't his attitude to his sin. It wasn't like he's like, I used to love my sin, but then I met Jesus and now I hate it. No, that's not what he says. He hates his sin before Jesus. He hates his sin after he meets Jesus. No, the thing that changed was not his attitude to his sin, but his attitude to his righteousness. Doesn't that blow your mind? You see, the way we typically think about the gospel is that it turns bad people into good people. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is much more profound than that. Ravi Zachariah says, Jesus didn't come to make good people, uh, sorry, to make bad people into good people. Jesus came to make dead people live. It's much more profound. It's a complete Copernican revolution. It's a total paradigm shift where you go from reveling in your righteousness, everything that's on your resume. It's like, it's like your ring of power, right? You're precious and you have to have it on you so that you don't feel naked and ashamed. It's, it's from reveling in that to feeling revulsion, revulsion at the thing you used to revel in. How does that happen? So yeah, we normally think of conversion as like taking a a naughty, irreligious person and turning them into a well-behaved, religious person, right? And that's how I got into ministry. Like, why else did I become a minister, right? It's true. I wanted to stop being a naughty boy and I'm going to start being a good Christian and you can't top Ridley College and a youth minister full-time in church, right? And so I'm going to stop working really hard to impress girls but then I'm still working. I'm going to start working really hard to impress God. I'm going to stop singing secular songs on the guitar. And, and now I'm going to start and to try and impress girls, right? That's what I was doing. And, and now I'm going to start playing Christian songs on the guitar to impress girls. I mean, God. I mean, <laughs> girls. Um, God. It's not been a change. It's just transferring one form of religion to another. And so what we do when we do this is, is like we treat God like a, a vending machine or like it's this transaction, right, where we, where we put together our resume and then we come to God and go, look, come on, pay up. Here I am. Let, let me in. And then, and then, of course, things don't go the way we want them to go and we encounter suffering. Things don't go our way. And you're like, well, God, you're not keeping up your end of the bargain. And you get bitterly disappointed and angry at God because of all the things that you're putting on your resume and God's not following through on you. Well, you're treating him like a resume, like a vending machine. 
That's not how it works. Here's the, here's the thing, friends. Religious people repent of their sins, but gospel people repent of their righteousness. Can you see that in the text? Please don't take my word for it. Please look at Philippians 3. Can you see it there? Religious people repent of their sins, but gospel people repent of their righteousness. In other words, when you become a Christian, you finally realize that even, you say, even when I was a Christian, I was trying to be my own saviour. So sure, Jesus was my example, Jesus was my hero, Jesus was my model, but Jesus was not my saviour. I was still trying to save myself with all of my religious activity. He was my example, but he was not my saviour. So to become a Christian is to stop trying to be your own saviour, as if you can earn your way in or climb your way up. To become a Christian is to be able to say from your heart, Isaiah 64 verse 6, which says, All our righteousness are like what? Filthy rags. And again, that's a polite sanitization. Paul is saying all our righteousness is like dung, but the translator is like, rubbish. And this is saying all our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's a used menstrual cloth, is what Isaiah 64 verse 6 says. Isn't that interesting? The, 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 the parallel. Paul says it's like dung, but we're like, let's call it rubbish. And Isaiah says it's like filthy menstrual cloths. And we're like, well, let's put in rags. Because it's our attempt at controlling God. It's our attempt, it's our way of avoiding God as saviour. Sure, I'll have him as my hero, I'll have him as my example, I'll have him as as my model, but I will not have him as my saviour. Because I don't need a saviour. Look at my resume. I'm awesome. But to come to Christ is to say, I count it all as loss because of Christ. You know, loss even doesn't even quite get it because it's actually it's it's like dangerous, it's like detrimental. It's it's not just like, oh I've lost that. It's like, no, that was doing me damage, that was awful, that was doing me harm. So to come to Christ is to do this. The call of the gospel is this, it's from a from a hymn. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him. In him alone, gloriously complete. Friends, a Pharisee only repents of their sins, but a Christian repents of their righteousness. And let me say to you here today, until you've learned how to repent of your righteousness, you may be religious, but you're not a Christian. At least not like what Paul's talking about here in Philippians 3. Until you learn to repent of your righteousness. Righteousness is our most fundamental need. Righteousness is our most fundamental problem. And righteousness is our greatest gift. This is where we, this is the pearl of great price, friends. This is the thing that Paul is most excited about. It's the super thing that he's found that leaves everything else for dead. 
And and what is this super thing? In verse 9 he says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. In other words, a Christian is someone who recognises that God gives you the perfect resume. It's his gift to you. So Paul uses this really important phrase in in verse 9 called in Christ. It's a profound and deep theological idea and and a beautiful thing. To be found in him, he says in verse 9. And Paul is saying that the beauty of the Christian gospel is that God finds me in Christ. When he looks at me, he sees me clothed in Christ and his record and his resume and his righteousness. And so he treats me accordingly, the same way he would treat Christ the eternal son. Uh, recently I read about a girl who, who used to be Mickey Mouse. She dressed up as Mickey Mouse and put on a Mickey Mouse costume for Disneyland, right? So, and she writes about her experience of being found in Mickey, okay, at Disneyland. And she says, Growing up I thrived on behaviour modification. I thought, if I'm good, I'll be loved. If I'm bad, I'll be rejected. And so I learned to wear a mask, not to show what was really going on. Anyone relate to that? I know I can. My core beliefs were that I was not worthy, accepted or loved. So I would clamour and manufacture ways to elicit positive responses that I wanted from people. When I put on Mickey's costume, I got that positive response times a hundred. In other words, she felt safe and loved and expected when she was clothed in Mickey's righteousness. Imagine all these kids at Disneyland running up and just beaming with delight and excitement when she's clothed in Mickey Mouse. Well, strangely, this this is a picture of what Paul's talking about when he's talking about being found in Christ. That he covers over our nakedness and our shame with his beautiful, dazzling, white, perfect clothes. It's like the perfect wardrobe. And so when the Father looks at us, he beams with delight, the eternal Father, as he would in the eternal Son. That's why we finish our services saying, the Lord, make his face shine upon you and lift up his countenance upon you. Because we're clothed in Christ and the Father beams with that eternal, glorious delight in us because we're clothed and found in Christ. Do you know that in your heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more you do, the more free you'll be. This is the pearl of great price, friends. Worth selling everything for. And this isn't just some gimmick kind of mask, a Mickey Mouse kind of clothing. No, this is, these clothes are a perfect fit. This is the perfect wardrobe. This is your true identity in Christ. This isn't a mask. This is your true glorious identity, who you were created to be in the image of God and, then, and your glorified self, the What Irenaeus says, the glory of God is a person fully alive. That's the glory of God. This is your glorious self, clothed in Christ. Truly you, redeemed in Christ. So that's why Paul's saying righteousness is our greatest gift. And it's interesting, in in Ephesians 6, he talks about it as the breastplate of righteousness, right? Do you remember that, the armour of God? 
A breastplate. In other words, once you're truly able to come to before God and say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. God accepts me because of the righteousness of Christ, the resume of Christ, and not because of my own. That's like putting on a breastplate. It's like wearing a bulletproof vest. It's like you're invincible when you've got that on. Now, how does that work? How does that work? Well, well, let me illustrate. Firstly, righteousness is a shield or a breastplate against neediness. Against your neediness to have that resume and to get everything on it. It's a, it's a breastplate against needy, neediness. Let me illustrate. As a youth minister about eight years ago, the thing that I needed on my resume more than anything else was to show everyone what an amazing youth minister I was. Right? How do you do that? Well, you do that by having a big, growing, successful youth ministry. I'd actually been quite a success in the church. I, I, I was. It, it, God had blessed it. It had grown. And I was like, oh, it's not me, it's God. And then I'm like, no, it's me. I'm not awesome. um, and, um, But then, right, somebody comes along and dangles a carrot and says, I've got a job for you at a bigger and more prestigious church where you'll, where you'll be able to, you know, Get that on your, on your resume. You know, up and up. Rising star in the evangelical world. And because of my need to get that on my resume and my need to be, prove my worth, that, that nakedness and shame, and I've got to clothe myself in these things. And so I couldn't resist. And so I turned a blind eye to things that should have been red flags. I turned a blind eye to warning signs. I, I, I took the job and three years later I was totally burned out and a, to- a pile of bumbling mess. And I'm still recovering today, eight years later, with chronic fatigue. But if I had the breastplate of righteousness on, right, I would have been like, man, what's that compared to having the glorious Heavenly Father beaming on me with joy and delight as he does in the sun? I don't need that. I'm content. Stay where I am. Perfectly content. Can you see how it's a shield against neediness? Now, my idol, my thing is approval, right? Like, that's what I need to have on my resume. For you, it might be different. It might be control. Like, if you're not in control of your kids or your family or the situation, that you have to, you need it. You have to have that. And you can't live without it. Well, if you put this breastplate of righteousness on, it's a shield against your need for control, your need for power, your need for influence, your need for approval. It's a bulletproof vest. Let me give you another story. I love this one. A couple of years ago, I invited you to a, um, a documentary by John Dixon um, called For the Love of God. Some of you went. I invited you. Somewhere. I was new here. We went to a cinema, Hoyt Cinema. There were like three or 400 people. And um, there was another guy there who's a bit of a mover and shaker in the... Um, in the Perth scene, you know, someone who could open doors for me. So, you know, do you have those people, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, this person could, if I show my resume, you know, I might open doors for me, right? So, so there was, we watched this documentary and there was a question and answer time afterwards, right? And in a split second in my subconscious, I'm like, man, I'm going to impress these guys. Like, there's like three or four hundred people here, St. Philip's people that are new, I need to make a good one. And this guy, and John Dixon, he's like my hero. I'm going to ask a cracker question, um, not because I want to know the answers to the question. I just need everyone to know that how awesome and smart I am, right? Um, you guys were there, Graham and Allison. Were you at their theatre? No, you weren't there. Barb was there. She'll be laughing her head off. I've told, I've told her this. And, 
And so, look, I'll tell you how it went in a second, right? But if I had the breastplate of righteousness on, right, I would be going, man, the approval of three or four hundred people, the approval of this guy who's a mover and shaker who can open and shut doors, the approval of you who guys who were there, no offence, what on earth is that compared to the glorious father of the universe beaming on me as I'm clothed in Christ? Well, like, what is it? It's dumb. And I would never have asked the question in the first place because I'd be like, man, what's that? I, are you kidding me? I've got Christ. I've got the affirmation and approval of the Father. And so it's a breastplate. It's a bulletproof vest. I don't need that. I don't need to get up and go, look at me. Christ's righteousness is a shield against neediness, but it's also a shield against shame. A shield against shame bulletproof vest after i crashed and burned out in ministry five years ago i started a blog and at the time i had this coach and she asked me a very good question she's like why are you starting a blog deep down i knew what the answer was but i didn't have my breastplate of righteousness on so i couldn't say it the answer was this I'm starting a blog because I feel completely naked and ashamed. I have just failed so publicly. I feel so humiliated that I need people to see that I'm still awesome, that I'm still worthy, that I'm still a rising star in the evangelical world, that I'm not a failure, I'm not a loser. I'm actually still a very gifted and talented person and people need to know that. But I couldn't say that. I couldn't admit that to myself, let alone to anyone else because I didn't have my breastplate of righteousness on but once you've got that on once you've got that breastplate of righteousness on you can finally admit it to yourself and and even to others because in your heart of hearts you can truly say I've got a righteousness that isn't based on my resume that doesn't come from works of the law or my performance my righteousness is based on faith in christ it's a righteousness from god that comes by faith and it's mine it's really mine by faith this isn't some mental trick name it and claim it thing no this is what these are the spiritual riches that i actually have in christ christ's righteousness is a shield against shame so now i can tell you that I can tell you about my shame because I've got my bulletproof vest on. When I asked that question in, in the cinema, oh, I wish you could have been there. Well, I don't. I, I do now. I certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have then um, because I, I have never made such a complete idiot of myself in my life. Like, so, I, so I asked this question and I'm going... This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it comes out and I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make any... I, and so the lady's like, oh, sorry, um, can you just like... I'm not sure what the question is. Can you... And I'm like... <gasps> so so I, say, I say it again and then, and then John Dixon's there. This is the guy, my hero, I'm trying to impress. And... Um, and he's like, look, sorry, mate, we've been on a long... He, he takes the hit. He's like, we've been on a long flight. We're really jet-lagged, so, you know, can you say the question again? <gasps> say it another time, right? <laughs> say it again. Still doesn't make any sense. 
just doesn't make any sense, right? And now I just wish the ground would open up and swallow me, all right? And, uh, and so he just has, a, he has an attempt, and, and then he's like, D- does that answer your question? And I'm like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> right? Just completely humiliating, right? Just utterly humiliating. Just complete opposite, right? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And until recently, it's been keeping me awake at night. Right? Keeping me awake. I'm lying there just going... <laughs> I, can't, I can't sleep. I'm such an idiot. Right? And I've ruined my chances with like this guy and blah. He's going to think I'm an idiot. But then I finally put my breastplate of righteousness on, right? And Jesus... It's like Jesus says to me, Kieran, don't worry about it. I love idiots. I love idiots. Here, give us those clothes. You've got clothes, it's, those clothes with idiot written all over it. Why don't, why don't you give me those and, and I'll take them to the cross. Hey? Why don't you give me those? And, and, I, and I've got these clothes here and, and, and it's just got like righteousness written all over it. Like it's just got glory written all over it. Here, why don't you take those clothes? And I'll take those ones with idiot all over it. And, and you just have those. <laughs> it's so good. It's freedom. So now the memory has gone from being a source of humiliation and shame, keeping me awake at night, to being a hilarious story that I can tell to you guys. My shame, my nakedness, my stupidity, my idiocy. I can laugh at myself. Because I got the breastplate of righteousness on. That's not my righteousness. Where's your righteousness? Is it in your resume? Or do you have one that's by faith in Christ, a righteousness not of your own, but one that is a gift that comes from God by faith? Jesus Christ, perfect resume. Are you found in your resume? Or are you found in Him, not having a righteousness of your own? Friends, righteousness is our greatest gift. So hear this. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him. In him alone. Gloriously complete. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. (coughs) Being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but one that is by faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that is by faith. Holy Spirit, help us to cast our deadly doing down. Would you provoke and stir in us this week? Show us how we can take off those clothes with idiot or awesome, whatever they are, written all over it. And to receive this gift of righteousness that you have for us by grace and faith in Christ. Help us to put that bulletproof vest on, Lord. Find our joy in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.